First thing that comes to our mind when you suggest to somebody that the New Testament Scripture never tells us that we are to love God is quotations from one of the Gospels. For example, Jesus telling his disciples that the first and great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. But the thing that we tried to emphasize last week is that there is a distinction between the New and the Old Covenant, isn't there? And the Gospels are not written on New Covenant ground. The Gospels are written on Old Covenant ground, are they not? And the Gospels address, and most especially the Synoptic Gospels, and by the Synoptic Gospels we'd mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not one of the Synoptic Gospels. And the Synoptic Gospels are particularly uh, a covenant of works. And they are written under Old Covenant relationship. And under Old Covenant relationship, man was blessed as he performed, wasn't he? Hmm? Wasn't he? He was blessed as he performed. If he did this, God did that. God said, if you will, I will. This do, and thou shalt live. That was the message of the law. But the new covenant relationship is not this do, but rather it's done. And when God finished the work in the person of his Son and ratified the new covenant in his blood, never since that time, that is, since the cross, is any suggestion made in the Scripture that I should love God. But rather, what does it say? God loves us, precisely. The New Testament message is that God loves us. <coughs> May I illustrate? You don't mind if I preach just a brief minute, would you? If I were to say to you all, uh, in a, uh, any kind of a uh, preaching session, now, every one of you here is responsible to love God, you could probably go out and say that Keith spoke something that was true. But you could not in honesty say that he spoke the truth. It's true that we ought to love God. But the truth is, we can't. Yes? Hmm? You don't have the machinery. Uh, otherwise, redemption wouldn't have been necessary. Man by his nature does not have the capability of loving God. You might as well tell a dog to fly. Now, if, uh, if you'll consider then what God says to me, what do you do with sin? If you don't love God, that's sin, isn't it? Yes? Uh-huh. So what do you do with sin? All right, you take it to the cross. Precisely. You confess it, don't you? Now, will you get the hypothetical picture just to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance? Let's suppose for a moment that I come to the awesome realization that I don't love God. Now, most of us like to hide that, you know, uh, thinking we can hide it from the Lord. But the best thing to do with it is go tell Him, isn't it? And so you go tell Him, Lord, my problem is I just don't love you. Now, that's a hard thing to say. Have you ever done that? It's a very difficult thing to say. I just don't love you. And what is the response of the Lord? Well, under the Old Covenant, it was, you better love me. But under the New Covenant, it says, that's all right. I love you. Do you, Lord? Yes, I love you. But Lord, I just told you I don't love you. That's okay. I love you anyhow. And I will continue to love you. Do you, Lord? Yes. Well, that's wonderful, Lord. I love you. See, love begets love. And the whole idea of a New Covenant relationship is God's going to beget in me by His own life what I do not possess myself. That's why it's called good news. And anything less than that is inadequate. Anything more than that is unnecessary. God in Christ has produced in me what is necessary altogether to satisfy his heart. So if I am an, an inadequate servant, Jesus Christ is an adequate servant. You follow that? Okay. So that the whole purpose of a diatheke is that God wants to produce in me. He is coming through, you see. He is going to produce in me what is necessary to satisfy a holy God. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their 
Come on. Well, you're on the right track. Now, I want that particular word, trespasses, unto them. You know the difference between a trespass and a sin? See, iniquity describes the character of it. But sin and trespass de de uh, uh, define the attitude. A sin is anything that comes short of the nature of God. All trespass is sin, but not all sin is trespass. That's kind of like saying, you know, all dictionaries are books, but not all books are dictionaries. So there's a distinction you have to make. Sin is anything that comes short of the character and the nature of God. And man is guilty by sin. But it's interesting that trespass points to those things which I do or don't do when I know better. In other words, trespass speaks to the revelation of God. Sin becomes trespass when God told me about it. Up to that time, it isn't. So you come to that fence, you know, and you want to go duck hunting, and, and uh, there's a fence around the place, and it's barbed wire, and it's four strands high, and uh, it's got a sign on it that says, No Trespassing. Hmm? And you go through anyhow, and you leave a little of your britches on a barbed wire fence, and you go out there into the field, and the farmer catches you, and he says, What are you doing in my field? What are you going to say? Yeah, yeah, you're trespassing. Your britches are on the fence. The sign is up there right where you crossed. And it's very evident you knew you shouldn't be in there. But now if there's no fence and no sign and it's open field and you go in there, then maybe the rancher or farmer doesn't want you in there, but you haven't trespassed, you've sinned. Do you see? Now that may not be so true in the state of Texas, but it is in the state of Florida. In the state of Texas, there are laws about that. All right. So God has then made provision in Christ for... Uh, trespass. He is, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not their sins, but their trespasses unto them. God has not even imputed to me, God has not, in other words, reckoned me guilty of the things that I did wrong when I knew I shouldn't have done them wrong, which is somewhat contrary to humanistic thinking in, in the uh, uh, body of Christ today, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I, I had suggested to me the other day that God will forgive Anything I do when I don't know it, but if I know better and I do it, he won't forgive me. How ridiculous. You know what that does for all of us? We're wiped out, if that's the case. There's not an individual in the body of Christ that has not transgressed against God. That is, done it and know he shouldn't have. Or not done it and known he should have. One being like the other. All right. Any questions about uh, covenant and diatheke and suntheke to this point? All right. I uh, gave to you last week a, a list of the eight covenants uh, which are revealed in the Scripture. Now, I want to draw a parallel to those for you to point out why God makes these covenants and how they fit in with what is commonly called dispensational revelation. And if I can put these out here together on this board, the covenant in Eden, covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, first of all. We'll start there. Now, uh, first of all, before I start to parallel these, let me define the word dispensation. And for those of you who have not been afflicted with this, it won't make any difference. For those of you who have, I'm saying this for your benefit. There has been a lot of uh, criticism come to dispensational teaching. I think probably because of the people who taught it, not because of the subject. That's usually the problem. The word dispensation, and Paul uses this in, the, in Ephesians chapter 3, for example, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, Paul said. Uh, further, the dispensation of the grace of God was delivered to him that he might uh, declare Christ among the Gentiles and so forth. The word dispensation means stewardship. Stewardship. If you brought it over into another English word, it would be a dispensing of. A dispensing of. 
So when you talk about dispensations, you're talking about God dispensing a revelation of his own character. And every, every time God manifested something of his own person, he gave with that a covenant. So that with the covenant, I could find righteousness in him, even though I did not walk right with regard to the stewardship or the revelation or the responsibility which was put upon me. For example, in the Garden of Eden, a responsibility was put upon man. And this dispensation in the Garden of Eden is referred to as, whoops, innocence. Man was innocent in the Garden. He, he never has been since then, but he was then. He was innocent in the Garden. Now, uh, by the way, i got to say this since I'm here. Since we're talking about New and Old Covenant, <clears throat> I can give some justice to saying it. Uh, it's interesting to me that man was under law in the Garden. Have you ever observed that? Man was under law in the garden. What was the law? Don't eat of that tree. Yes, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's law, isn't it? But did that bother the man? It didn't trouble him at all because he wasn't a lawbreaker. You're only troubled by law if you're a lawbreaker. Uh, Paul said the law isn't a terror to good works, but to evil. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I illustrated this to a friend of mine one time. He had an old Ford pickup truck, and uh, it wouldn't probably go but 50 or 60 miles an hour. And I was kind of chuckling with him. This was a long time ago before speed limits were changed. I said, you know, David, you wouldn't have any problem with worrying about being a lawbreaker on the Kansas Turnpike. Speed limit there was 80 miles an hour at that time. I said, you would never in any way ever reach that point with this vehicle. So he could drive full blast. You know, he could do absolutely anything he wanted to speed-wise with that vehicle on a Kansas <clears throat> Turnpike. And that's rather the situation that Adam was in in the garden. Uh, he could do anything he wanted to because in his innocence, he was not a lawbreaker, and any amount of law in the world would not have bothered him. Now, as a, a connecting uh, thought to that, Paul says in his first epistle to Timothy that uh, the law was not given to the righteous man, but the law is given for the sinner and the whoremonger and the adulterer and the thief and the manslayer and so on down the line. What is the purpose of law? We'll come to this momentarily. Somebody tell me. What's the purpose of law? Exactly. By the law is the knowledge of sin. There you are. That's why it was given in the first place. See that momentarily then. Man was under law in the garden. He was innocent. That didn't bother him at all. He was uh, quite content with that. So the Edenic covenant was related to man staying away from the tree, wasn't it? God said to that man, I'm going to put you in this garden. He said, you can eat anything you want to, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, don't eat of that. Lest in the, eat, in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the, the stewardship which God had put upon man, or the dispensation, was a dispensation of innocence. He didn't have a problem with that tree until the snake came on the scene and beguiled his wife. And I hasten to say this at the risk of great repetition. Remember again that the man in this situation knew exactly what he was doing. Didn't he? He knew exactly what he was doing. The woman was deceived. The man was not deceived. Uh, what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus in that. Have you considered that? That uh, why did the man go ahead and eat of that fruit? Since I'm here, I've got to say this. What? Hmm? He didn't want to lose Eve. Precisely. He loved that woman with a perfect love. And he recognized that he was about to lose her because she had rebelled against God's commandment. And the only way to keep her was to die with her. Precisely. Now, how did the Lord Jesus keep the church? Christ loved the church. Scripture never says God loved the church. Scripture says God loved the world. It says Christ loved the church. So how was he going to keep the church that he loved, which was fallen into sin? He had to die with it, didn't he? 
Same thing Adam did. You notice in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that, that uh, Adam the first is a figure of him that is to come. And you can fi find remarkable parallels between the experience of the first man, Adam, and the experience of the last Adam. Uh, well, I more bunny path to that, but I'm not going to pursue it. All right. After Adam sinned then, he was put out of the garden, and he was in uh, uh, Eden. Now, the Edenic covenant is relative to the garden relationship. But after Adam sinned, he came out of the garden, and he was in Eden. He was not in Nod yet. The garden was not Eden. The garden was a place in Eden. We all remember that, don't we? We talked about that last week, too, in distinctions of uh, the threefold creation of God. And under the Adamic covenant, then, he is under a dispensation or a stewardship, if you would, of conscience. Uh, since he's out of the garden, he's not problemed with the tree of knowledge of good and evil anymore. By the way, uh, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It isn't the tree of good and evil, is it? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a prerogative which belongs to God. And the prerogative which belongs uniquely to God is the right to decide what is good and what is evil. Have you noticed that we've kind of seized that today? I'm going to meddle a little bit, Brother Jack. Have you noticed we have seized that right today and we have already determined that if the believer experiences... That's an editorial we now, you understand. We have already determined that if the believer experiences anything that's adverse, it's got to be the devil because the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy... So if any problems occur in the life of the believer, the way to get rid of it is to rebuke the devil. Do you know what we're doing? The same thing Adam did in the garden. We are seizing from God the prerogative to determine what is good and what is evil. And we, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, look at good and call it evil, and we look at evil and call it good. We're doing the same thing Adam did. And it takes the understanding of those who have their senses exercised to discern good and evil, Hebrews chapter 5, to make that distinction. So we can see a man in great suffering, for example, and we, say, we can say to him, uh, you haven't learned to rebuke the devil yet. So we are looking at, uh, uh, we, we are looking at evil as we understanding and calling it evil when in fact we might be looking at good and calling it evil. It might be good for him. How do you suppose Job's three friends saw his circumstance? As good or evil? Hmm? Quite evil, yes. Quite evil. Not only was the circumstance evil, but they came to the conclusion Job was too. When the end of the matter pronounces that it was all good. That's astounding, isn't it? You see, we are seizing from God the prerogatives which belong uniquely to Him to make that distinction. And only those who have their senses exercised can think, uh, can uh, uh, determine with the Lord in that. So man is put out of the garden now and he's moving under a conscience and the conscience is the moral nature of God written on his heart. Man is created in the image of God and in his likeness. Shall I drop this on you? I dropped it on a class last night too, so I'll drop it on you. <clears throat> Give all of you the same benefit of meditating on it and chewing on me if it comes to that. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I'm trying to say this in such a way so as to stay out of trouble. <laughs> uh, let me put it this way. God is spirit, isn't he? He is not an anthropomorphic being. That is, he's not mortal flesh as we are flesh. But by the same token, beloved, God is not a blob. We tend to think of spirit as some sort of a gaseous, nebulous substance out there that doesn't have any form or shape. God has a shape, and he sits on a throne. Hey? And every time God has ever been seen in a vision in the Scripture, not the Son now, the Father, 
has ever been seen in a vision in the Scripture, he was always one like unto a man sitting on a throne. And when God created man, he created him in his image, that is in his moral nature, and in his likeness, that is after his shape. Now that does not say God is anthropomorphic, but God has a shape and we are the shadow of that shape. Do you see that? Now shadows never tell the whole story, do they? They are a bare outline, that is all. And we are a bare outline of what God looks like. Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, when man began to decay in his sin, that he began to recreate God, first in the image of man, and then the image of beast, and then creeping things, and etc. you go with it, down goes the progression. And then, of course, the images began to recreate the man. So man has a moral nature of God that's written on his heart because he's created in the image of God, and that conscience then, according to Paul in Romans 2, bears witness either accusing or excusing one another. And that was the thing that governed him uh, under the Adamic covenant. But now we're going to come to the Noahic covenant. Somebody watch our time for us, and we'll take a break at the appointed moment at about 10 minutes to uh, 10, if you would. Uh, we come to the Noahic covenant now, and there's going to be a marked change in how God is going to deal with man. The reason being, according to the Apostle Paul, man defiles his conscience, and then finally he sears his conscience, doesn't he? First the conscience is defiled, that is, he gets all messed up in the deeds that he wants to do. He's still sensitive, but he doesn't care anymore about that because he's enjoying too much his rebellion against God. Until finally he sears his conscience, Paul said, and after they've seared their conscience, then they don't feel anything anymore, and they uh, go on with their pursuits without any acknowledgement that God will do good or evil, in the words of the book of the prophet Zephaniah. But under the Noah covenant, after man has done this, then God's going to institute another principle to govern man in his iniquity until God could bring in everlasting righteousness. So under the Noah covenant, he is put under what is called human government. Well, the covenant of Noah, Noahic, yeah, yeah. It's a fancy way of saying the Noah's covenant, brother. Yeah. Um, now, uh, at the point of Noah, you'll remember, and by the way, I'll throw this in just for what it's worth. At the point of Noah, uh, God is about to baptize the earth. And this is a sidelight, but I don't think altogether irrelevant. Before the Edenic covenant, that is, before the creation of man, what was the condition of the earth? Now watch it. Now, you know, every time I say that, nobody ever answers me. i got to quit saying that. Yes. Uh, immediately before the creation of man is being placed in that garden, what was the condition of the earth? It was what? No. No. It was. Absolutely perfect. Why was it perfect? Because God had just remade the whole thing, hadn't he? He started in Genesis 1, 3 and said, Light be, light was, and from that point on, he recreated the whole earth to have a, a perfect circumstance in the which to put a perfect man. That was his intent. All right, now, if it was perfect here, and it was perfect in its first creation, Genesis 1-1, what was its condition in Genesis 1-2, and how did it get there? All right, it was waste and wild, more literally. It was tohu and bohu. If Genesis 1-1 then, God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and Ecclesiastes tells us that God made all things perfect in their time, chapter 3, and Isaiah 45 tells us he created it not a waste, and that's the same Hebrew word which shows up in Genesis 1-2, translated waste, then how did it get that way? 
All right, Satan fell into sin, and he brought his whole rulership into chaos and sin with it. That's the, con that's the reason for the condition of Genesis 1-2. And the earth became, literally, waste and wild, and darkness was up over the, over the face of the roaring deep. I said all that to say this now. I had to say that so this would make some sense. There was then, before the Edenic covenant, a chaos on the earth which had to be done away with by recreation, bringing back a perfect earth, and that was a baptism into death. It was covered with water too, by the way, wasn't it? Hmm? The Spirit of God brooded over the face of the roaring deep. So the, the earth experienced a baptism of death after the fall of Satan. God brought everything into death. Everything. Now with Noah, however, we're going to have another baptism, aren't we? But this time it's going to be a baptism of water. But everything doesn't die, does it? Eh? But there is a preservation of life. There is a remnant preserved in that baptism of water. I said all that to say this. There is a third baptism which is projected for the earth. We're talking about the physical creation here now. There is a third baptism which is projected for the earth. It's a baptism of what? Fire. Now, you find a parallel in your experience. You, first of all, were joined to Christ in a baptism into his death, Romans chapter 6. You, secondly, are sanctified by a baptism in water, 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 18 and following. You are finally... Going, uh, you finally experience a baptism of fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I believe it is. You can check me out on that. I'm not sure. Is that correct? You should be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. So in this case, it is a union in a figure, a union in his death and his resurrection. In this case, it is a union in sanctification. And in this case, it is a union in power. You want to make note of the experiences which the physical creation has and how they parallel the believer's walk in the Lord. And God is always consistent. So under the Noahic covenant then, God baptizes the earth and water, and he destroys all things that offend, because by man's defiling and searing his conscience, he has come to the point that his stench comes up in the nostrils of God, and God says, I will destroy man from off the face of the earth which I have made. Now, one other thing probably ought to be noted here. The... Uh, a question is raised from time to time about God repenting. And that word, of course, is used with regard to God's destroying man. He said, it repenteth me that I have made man on the earth. Some have suggested to us that God made a mistake and he started over again. I don't know how many of you all saw the movie, uh, Oh God. Uh, I sat down with a friend of mine <clears throat> in his home in Kerrville and we watched the first 15 minutes of it and by that time I was ready to throw up so we turned it off. But uh, that thing was just full of God uh, making mistakes. You know, he did this wrong, he did that wrong, and so forth. It really gives you an impression of how the world views uh, the creation of God. They're looking at the situation the way it is now. That was really a bit of a revelation to me. They're looking at the situation the way it is now, and they're blaming it on God. Whose fault is the situation the way it is now? Yes, indeed. We're the ones that brought it into the mess it's in. God starts out always with a perfect creation. Everything he ever makes, he creates perfect. But man, by, by bringing destruction, brought himself then to the point that God said it repented him that he made man. Did that mean then that God was changed in his mind? No, it did not. The word repent, as it's used in the Old Testament Scripture, there are two words. <coughs> Excuse me. 
which reflect on that, let me go ahead and give you some references that may be uh, to your benefit. I wasn't going to take the time to do that, but <clears throat> if you want to run this word, the one word uh, re uh, suggests that, uh, oh, I can't give you the references. I don't have a note of them. Sorry about that. Well, I'll give them to you at another time. Uh, the one word which is used of God means to change one's dealings or to ease oneself. And the word which is used of man, that is in repenting with regard to his sin, etc., means to change his mind or his direction. Now, every time the Scripture makes reference to God repenting, it's always with reference to changing his dealings or easing himself. For instance, it's used with regard to um, David's sin in numbering the people of Israel, and he is about to destroy Jerusalem, and God said he repented him of what he was about to do, that is in destroying Jerusalem when David came before the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, you remember. Those words then have to be drawn in distinction. God does not change his mind. God has his mind made up from eternity past, and he is doing according to his own will. All right. So the human government then is put upon man. I want you to look with me to Genesis 9. There are some things here which might be of interest to us. Human government simply says that God is now putting the responsibility into the hands of man for governing himself on the earth. And a principle that follows from this point out is that God is going to set the man in authority who is going to carry on that government. May I just digress, meddle a little bit here? Who put uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in power? God did. Uh, he found that out the hard way, didn't he? Uh, who put uh, Alexander the Great in power? Who put Richard Nixon in power? Who put Stalin in power? Who put Hitler in power? Now, it kind of staggers us somewhat if we consider the ramifications of that, but we're again always looking at the surface at evil and calling it good and looking at good and calling it evil. We don't make the distinction. And we, we have looked at what was in fact good and called it evil. Boy, that really makes me look like some kind of heretic now, doesn't it? But what was God out to do, just for example, with the Babylonians? Exactly. God was out to chasten Israel, and he says, Lo, I raise up that bitter and hasty nation, the Chaldeans, and they will cover the breadth of the land. And by that bitter and hasty nation, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, God carried the children of Israel into captivity for 70 years. And in the course of that time, he taught Nebuchadnezzar that he sets up whom he wills, and he brings down whom he wills, and whoever's in power and authority over a kingdom in this world, he is there because God has placed him there. Well, how come Hitler came to power? Same reason, to chasten his people. God had made a provision for the return of Israel to the land, but Israel wouldn't go back to the land. Israel in Europe was living sumptuously daily. They were thriving, economically well-heeled, and they didn't want to leave. And so God arranged a situation in Europe that would make them want to go back. And they did. And after the Second War, they went out by the, out by the thousands, did they not? Uh, God has a way of making us destitute to seek his face. All right, having said that then, uh, verse 8 and following of Genesis 9, And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature... Uh, 
uh, that is with you of the fowl of the uh, of the fowl of the cattle of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the fir, uh, of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Now I want you to back up with that in mind, please. To verse uh, four, the life, uh, or I'm sorry, but the but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. God is giving to man a new diet. We don't have time to address that in full right now. But man's diet changed from a herbivorous creature before the flood to a carnivorous creature after the flood. And surely your blood of your lives will requ I will require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. What is he doing then? He is putting the responsibility for executing judgment into the hands of man. He is establishing capital punishment. This probably goes without saying in this group, but I want to ask the question anyhow, did God ever repeal that? No, he did not. As we mentioned to uh, one group the other day, they didn't have any prisons in Israel, and it was not necessary uh, for uh, uh, God to establish these uh, institutions of higher learning for criminology, which is pretty well what we've got in our prison system. Uh, the, the responsibility then having been committed into the hands of man, God establishes what we call, just for simple terms, human government, and from that point on, the governments of man were invested in a few. You all mind if I meddle a little bit more? I'm having a hard time getting away from this, so I'm going to go ahead and say what's on my mind. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, before I say it, I probably ought to emphasize this, that uh, I am not unpatriotic. I have worn the uniform in this country. I am not a pacifist. If I had to go to, uh, to the military again, I'd go again. If I had to fight, I'd fight. I don't have any problem with that. War is judicial, not personal. But I hasten, having said that, I will now say this. We sometimes have the idea that the system of government that we have established in this country is the best anywhere. The reason that it has worked better than any other place is not because of the character or the quality of the government so much as it was that the blessing of God has been on the country. That's the sole reason. The, the, the advantages of a democratic society are only advantages as long as the society is halfway moral. But when the society is no longer moral and you've got everybody voting, then what's going to happen to the government and the experience of the people in that society? It's going to reflect exactly how the people vote. That's something to chew on. If you have, on the other hand, a monarchy and the king is righteous, the whole society will be righteous. You ever watch that through the Scripture? When the kings repented, the society was brought to repentance. But uh, when the king was evil, the whole society was evil. God's ideal government... Uh, is a monarchy. His uh, ultimate government is a theocracy. Now, we've got a government which was established on people who were concerned about justice, and it works fine as long as people are concerned about justice. But when people aren't concerned about justice anymore, it doesn't work anymore. And so we're seeing a deterioration of morality in this country, are we not? And every now and then you get a breath of fresh air. There is a reprieve somewhat, and we pull back away from our deterioration, more of the grace of God. The Lord is giving us... Uh, uh, a breather at that point. All right, enough of that then. So under the Noahic Covenant then, we have human government and the covenant we've just read. Now, after the Noahic Covenant, don't leave, leave anything out on forever putting conscience in, in innocence, etc. After Noah then, God calls out Abraham. Now, he said that through Noah, he was going to uh, bring blessing through his seed, and Noah had three sons. Truth? Yes? 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay. Through which of those three sons did God pass that covenant? And he always passes the covenant through one line. Shem. Through Shem. There is a prophecy concerning Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You have it before you there in Genesis chapter 9 in the last portion of it. He said, I will enlarge Japheth. He will dwell in the tent of Shem, and Canaan will be his servant. Now Canaan, you remember, was the posterity of Ham, who inhabited the land of Canaan, which Israel was going to dispossess. That becomes very important, that very pointed statement there with regard to Canaan. But what prophecy is he putting on the nations born out of Noah when he says that? I will enlarge Japheth. The Japhetic nations were at that point prophesied by the Lord. And you remember that God honored Noah's prophecy. It was, in fact, the Lord's prophecy. And the Japhetic nations became the rulers of the world. Didn't they? What was Rome? Japhetic, wasn't it? Uh, and he will dwell in the tent of Shem. Now, the primary reference there is to spiritual blessings. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan will be his servant. The tent of Shem is spiritual blessing. Through whom does always spiritual blessing come? The line of Shem, doesn't it? There's another little sidelight on that. <clears throat> These pants I'm wearing have a tag on the back that says Levi Strauss. All of West Texas is dwelling in Shem's tent. Did you know that? As you, next time you put on that real, well, you ladies don't qualify here probably too much, but you ask your husbands next time he puts on that real nice suit he owns, open the inside and see if it says Hart, Shaffner, and Marks. See, he's dwelling in Shem's tent. Shem controls 60% of the finances of the world. Uh, Arabs are Shemites. Don't you think that's interesting? And the world is dwelling in Shem's tent. Now, God didn't, uh, end with narrowing the line just through Shem. So that encompasses the Arabs. It ultimately ends up with Israel, and it is out of Israel Messiah comes, and that's the emphasis. And then he says, Canaan shall be his servant. So God has set down on the, on the three um, ethnic peoples of the world the prophecies that were going to be their lot until God brings in everlasting righteousness. I'm on a bit of a bunny path here, but I feel like I'd like to pursue it. Will you forgive me that and give me some free time, all right? Uh, he said Japheth was going to be first politically that Ham was going to be last politically, and that all of them were going to be blessed spiritually through Shem and blessed economically through Shem. The uh, uh, incidents in history when Ham tried to take over rulership of the world, for example, you remember a fellow named Hannibal who made an attempt to conquer the Roman kingdom, but God said this far and no farther. Nimrod, who tried to gather these men around him to build a kingdom. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that doesn't mean a hunter of white-tailed deer. That means a hunter of men. He was a Hamite, but God wouldn't have it. You see? He had ordained Japheth to rule the kingdoms of the world, and he had ordained Shem to bring spiritual blessing. He had ordained Ham to nothing. So in one case, we have political blessing. In the next case, spiritual blessings. In the next case, no blessing. But the remarkable thing to me is that when God begins to work grace in the earth, the last shall be first and the first last. You notice how he has a way of reversing that? Now, uh, before I even come to the reversal, let me illustrate it further. When the Lord Jesus was crucified, who had absolute authority over him? I'm talking about the kings of this world. I recognize God had authority over it all. Jesus said, you could have no power over me except be given you from above. But setting that aside for the moment, who was governing things politically when Jesus was crucified? Rome. There's Japheth, you see. He is exercising political authority. Uh, who is the spiritual blessing? Through whom is the blessing coming? In the crucifixion. 
Come on, that's too obvious. So, through whom is the spiritual blessing coming in the, in the crucifixion? Jesus, precisely. So, Japheth is crucifying. Shem is dying. See, political power, spiritual blessing. Who carried the cross? Oh, isn't that interesting? A Hamite. Simon from North Africa. He's the servant. Do you see the parallel? So we have a Japhetic who is in power. We have a Semitic who is bringing spiritual blessing. And we have a Hamitic who is being the servant. Now, having said that, notice after the gospel begins to be preached. Who is the first beyond the day of Pentecost when we're dealing with the covenant of Israel? That's quite a different thing. But beyond Pentecost, when the announcement of the gospel begins to be made to individuals of other nations, who's the first one to get it? Japheth? Shem? How about Ham? Acts chapter 8? You remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's the first one. Don't you think? And the last shall be first, and the first last. In chapter 8, you have a Hamitic. In chapter 9, you have a Semitic. And in chapter 10, the guy that was first is last. Cornelius? The Japhetic, you see. Well, I don't know if that was worth anything or not, but that kind of thing is interesting to me. You see? The, the patterns of the Scripture are remarkable. And it pays to pick them up. They teach us lessons about how God deals. And the grace of God now, in a marvelous way, is manifest to Ham when before he was totally excluded. And Japheth is still ruling in power, but he's going to have to surrender that rule in power to Shem, isn't he? Ultimately. And God said to the children of Israel, I, you were the tail, I'm going to make you again the head and no longer the tail, the prophecy of Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so... Ham is a part of the black race, they're not all of it. Uh, the black race is not all of Ham. Uh, Egyptians are Hamitic, for example. There is some difference of opinion as to what the Chinese are. It's my feeling they're Hamitic. Others feel they're Semitic. I don't think either one of us can prove ourselves right. We're safe for the point, anyhow, for the moment, anyhow. Uh, the Mexicans, uh, uh, that's a little difficult to determine because there's a mixture there of Spanish and European and Indian and so forth. But the pure Mexican or the Indian, the Aztec and Inca and so on, they were uh, uh, Hamitic. Um, this is parenthesis here. Well, I'm not a, well, I'll put it this way. I'm not an artist saint, so I make uh, no pretext to that. Here is the United States, say, and here is South America down here somewhere. And over here is Europe with its various islands and coasts and et cetera. And down here, uh, Africa, great continent, and so forth. Now, if you shove those two together, you've observed that they fit. And doubtless you have pursued what is called the continental drift theory, which is no longer a theory. It was known as a theory until about five years ago. And they are determined now of a certainty that uh, uh, North and South America and Europe and Africa used to be joined together in one. Well, wasn't that sweet of them to finally come to that conclusion which the, when the Scriptures taught it for 4,000 years? Hmm? Matter of fact, it taught it 4,000 years before Jesus came on the scene. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 tells us that in the days of Peleg was the earth divided. God split the earth. The word, the Hebrew word is split. There's another word uh, translated divided with regard to the kingdoms of men were divided. That's a different Hebrew word altogether. God said in the days of Peleg, He split the earth. This was about 200 years after the flood. You remember how the earth was created at the outset? God gathered the waters together into one place, and the dry land appeared. Up until the time of about 200 years after the flood, all the land mass was in one place, one solid land mass. 
And then after God scattered the peoples over the face of the earth, after the confusion at the Tower of Babel, then he split the earth in half. This is probably why, and this is only lambology here. I do not propose to uh, intend this as a solemn God-sent truth, you understand. But this is probably why we only know where two of the four rivers that are named in the original creation are. The four rivers that are named, you remember, were uh, the rivers of yeah, the Tigris and Euphrates. We know where they are. And the Hittic, uh, not Hittakil, that's Tigris. Um, oh, my. See, repetition is the price of knowledge by use, we remember. But in any case, there are two other rivers there, and we don't know where those two rivers are. I would suggest to you that at least one of those rivers, if not two, was the great river that divided these two sections. They, they all four went out of Eden and were divided into four heads and watered the whole earth. Two of them, we know where they are. And they center in what we think was probably the location of the Garden of Eden. You know, there again, that's just a lot of conjecture. We just don't know. In any case, God split this thing and the Atlantic Ocean came between. And science has finally come to the conclusion with the scripture, that the Scripture has taught for generations that these were at one time one solid land mass. Now, why did I get on that? I was after something when I said that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. All right. So God intended then that when these races were scattered that they stay scattered. And the way he did that was after the confusion at the Tower of Babel, he scattered them and then split the land so that they would stay where they belong. Now, all right, here's where I was, what I was out to say. Have you noticed that the cultures of the people of North Africa and of Northern South America are the same? The worship cultures are the same. They both build pyramids, for example. It's because they used to be joined together and related. And when God split these things, he just parted right down their living room, if you would, and left them the way they were. And, of course, over the centuries there is a certain cultural difference which arises in time, but basically they are the same. We go to great lengths to teach our children how the American Indian got over here. You know, they went down, went way up north, came down over the Bering Straits, etc., etc. No, he didn't. He just walked straight across. It's very simple. No problem. And then God split the thing, and there he was left where he was. And the American Indian comes out of the Hamitic line. You see? Because this habitation had spread out from a center. And Israel is the geographical center of the world. And everything spreads out from there. That's even recognized by, uh, what do you call them? Geographers. All right. Did I ever get to Abraham and the promise? Never did. I think it's time for you to take a break, so why don't you do that and we'll come back and talk about Abraham and the promise when we can get there. The day of man, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, and the day of God. Four prophetic days. Four is a world number. A river went out of Eden, divided into four heads, watered the whole earth, four seasons, four points of the compass, four corners of the earth. On you go with it. Four is a world number. There's always four major Gentile kingdoms of the world that God is dealing with prophetically. The day of man, day of Christ, day of the Lord, and day of God. The day of man started with a fall, and it proceeds to the second coming. There's an overlapping in these days. The day of man began with a fall, and it proceeds to the second coming. The day of Christ speaks to the day when the church of Jesus Christ is translated. In the case of the day of man, we have 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. No, verse 3. You have to check that. Verse 3 to 5, the context, I think. It's translated in Paul's words, It is nothing to me that I be uh, judged of you or of man's judgment. That's the way the King James reads. The Greek word translated judgment is hemera, not anthropo. I'm sorry. Uh, the Greek word translated day 
uh, translated judgment, should be translated day. It is the word hemera. It is not the word krenos. I'll get that out right in a minute. Um, so, the day of Christ makes reference to the translation. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. The day of the Lord speaks of, first of all, the time of judgment. It begins with uh, the, uh, uh, whatever term you want to use, time of Jacob's trouble, the great desolation, the tribulation, the great one. It begins with the translation of the church, which starts tribulation in the earth, and it proceeds through the 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus. That's the day of the Lord. But it always starts with trouble. It always starts with trouble. And the day of God, then, is when Jesus delivers up the kingdoms to God and God becomes all in and all, or, in other words, eternity. I spell eternity. Is that right? All right. So the day of man starts with the fall of man. That's when man's doing his own thing, quote-unquote. The day of Christ is the translation of the church. The day of the Lord, the tribulation, and the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus, and the day of God, eternity. Now, I said all that so that this, context, this passage I'm going to read will have some measure of context. Verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. The reference then is to this period when God is going to judge in the earth. This is the time when that great holocaust you're talking about, Betty, will come during this time of tribulation. It may begin before them. I am pre-tribulationary, but I am not pre-trouble. That is, I mean, the church is going to be taken out before the tribulation, but not necessarily before trouble. Uh... Verse 7, Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain like a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. For the stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in its going forth. The moon shall not cause its light to shine. Those are the same terms Jesus uses. Matthew 24 to describe the tribulation. Same terms Joel uses in his prophecy to describe the tribulation. I'm reading this just to give some context to it. Verse 11, And I will punish the world for its evil. You see? And the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make, make a man more rare than the fine gold. Uh, the, uh, I will make a man more rare than fine gold, even a man than the fine gold wedge of Orpher. I'm sticking words in there. Forgive that. Now you watch. The idea of man being more rare than gold is that God is going to reduce the population of the earth by this great uh, uh, judgment that He's going to pour out. So greatly, as a matter of fact, Isaiah says in another place that seven women will take hold of the skirt of one man, saying, Let us be called by your name to take away our reproach from us, and we'll earn our own keep and make our own way. But there's just not enough men around. Because they all die in war. You see? That's Armageddon. Uh, now, verse 13. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of its place. That's what he did during the flood. He shook the heavens and the earth. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, in the day of his fierce anger, and it shall be like the chaste roe and like the sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man, note this now, here's what we were after. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. Every nation returning to his own people. But you'll notice there is a suggestion in that that there may be a great exodus from various nations of the world. One of the problems that Britain is having now, and they are multiple, is a problem with racial conflict, black and white. Pretty much the same difficulty we experience here. Now go with me to Ezekiel 20. 
labor that any longer. There's more that could be said. Uh, I said 20. That's the deals with the rod of Israel upon Israel. I'm going to go ahead and read that, but it isn't really specifically, and I'll come to 21 in a moment. Uh, chapter 20, verse 34. And I will bring you... Well, I guess that's good enough. Well, let's start with 33, yeah. Let's start with chapter 20, verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and will gather you out of the countries in which you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. By the way, beloved, this is not so far into our lesson. I'll redeem this somehow or another. You see, this is relative to the covenant which God made with Israel, which is what we're trying to start here. God made a covenant with his people which he never intends to repeal. And when God declares a covenant, he establishes that covenant. If he, if he establishes an eternal covenant with somebody, he's going to fulfill that covenant. That's what this is all about. The restoration of that people. We're already seeing the remnant of it right now. Historically, I mean. Verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there will I enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I enter into judgment with you, saith the Lord God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, the wilderness of the people makes reference to the land of the Gentiles, and God is causing them to pass under the rod under the Gentiles. Hitler was God's rod. Can you see that? And he caused them to pass under that rod. Egypt was God's rod. Babylon was God's rod. Assyria was God's rod. And when he is through with all of this, he will have left the remnant of the people into whom he can bring, uh, whom he can bring into the bond of the covenant. He's going to restore a covenant of love with them. That's what the book of the prophet Hosea is all about. All right, now move over with me to chapter 21. Verse 30, shall I cause, that is, my sword to return to its sheath? I will judge thee in the place where thou wast created, in the land of thy nativity. I will pour out my indignation upon thee. I will blow against thee in the fire of my wrath and deliver thee into the hand of brutal men and skillful to destroy. And notice what he said in verse 30. I will judge thee in the place where thou wast created in the land of thy nativity. Somebody tell me, who was in one of the courses in Genesis, where the mystery of iniquity was born. Anyone remember? Babylon, precisely. I want you to look at a verse in Zechariah chapter 5. The mystery of iniquity was born in Babylon. Guess where God's going to judge it? Exactly. Verse 9, Zechariah 8. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. And then said I to the angel who talked with me, Where do these bear the ephah? And we've already seen the ephah and the woman to be wickedness in verse 8. You have to read the context. Where do these bear the ephah? Verse 11. And he said unto me, To build for it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there on its own base. Where's Shinar? Zechariah chapter 5, verse 8. Oh, well, you need to take the whole context. Verse, chapter 5, verse 5 through verse 11. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5 through verse 11. Now, that deals with wickedness, the mystery of iniquity, and it's being taken back to Babylon to be destroyed. Uh, Brother Jack, I don't know if you have come on this or not, but an article came to me the other day, which was written by the brother who re writes prophetic uh, articles for Christ for the Nation. What's his name? Duncombe. Yes. Duncombe? Duncombe. And... Uh, I appreciated, uh, I had heard of this some time back, but I appreciated the fact that something is being written on it now, and it was puzzling to me that nothing had been written on it. And there's an article in one of the magazines by this dear brother, and he is noting the reconstruction that is going on in the city of Babylon right now. 
they're rebuilding. Now, the reason they hadn't rebuilt it up to this time is they couldn't afford it. But now Babylon, which is what? Nation. What nation is Babylon? Iraq, exactly. Now they're wealthy. Why are they wealthy? Yeah, look at all the money Shem's making. You know? And as a, hmm? Yeah, the city will be called Babylon. The country is not known, but the city, yes. They're rebuilding Babylon. They're excavating. They've got to take 16 feet of dirt off the whole thing. And they're even going to rebuild the tower. Yes. It's remarkable. Oh, yes. There's a curse of judgment and final destruction on it. Yes. But you see, that's the important thing. Uh, whenever a prophecy concerning any given thing is not fulfilled, you can be sure that God hasn't finished yet. The prophecies with regard to Babylon in her first destruction were never thoroughly and finally fulfilled. And when that is the case, God will always come back and finish the job. I hope that was put together in such a manner that it makes some profit to you, uh, beloved. But some of it we'll discuss later on as we go. Anyhow. All right. Abraham then. When God made covenant with Abraham, and we talked about this covenant last week, and we noted the covenant which God made with Abraham is the covenant which passes to us. We'll talk about this more in this class when we deal with the subject of the seed of Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant as it passes to us comes through the promise. The dispensation of promise then came with Abraham. And the dispensation of promise is very simply that God gave promise of a seed and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Genesis chapter 15. We further noted to you that that expression that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness is only used in the scripture as it relates to the promise of the son. It is not spoken with regard to his leaving Ur of the Chaldees. We usually... Uh, uh, make reference to Abraham's faithfulness in obeying God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and because of that, he believed God was counted him for righteousness. But that expression is not used in connection with his leaving Chaldee. The expression is used with reference to his believing the promise of a coming son. And we are righteous on the basis of believing the promise of the coming son, aren't we? Yes. Or the son who has come in our case. Okay. So the dispensation of promise then is uh, uh, the word of God concerning the grace of God given to his people. Now, moving on with that, there is a, we're going to come to a big break now with the next dispensation and the next covenant. The next covenant is the Palestinian. Uh, I don't know if you uh, are aware of this or not. I don't think I said anything about it the other day. But if you're listening to a broadcast, maybe I did. If you're li listening to a broadcast on BBC of uh, World News and they're talking about the Palestinian question and perhaps even about the uh, talks that are going on here at Camp David, uh, guess what they call the Palestinians? You never heard that, huh? Philistines. How about that? They are Philistines. Well, isn't that remarkable? You know, of all of the seven nations that God told Israel to dispossess from the land of Canaan, he never told them to dispossess the Philistines. Did you know that? The Gergesites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, uh, the Amorites. Who did I leave out, Brother Jack? The Hittites. And Jebusite, yes, the Amorite doesn't go in that category. He's on the other side of the river. Uh, but seven of them. But he never said anything about the Philistines. Do you know why? Because those seven nations give to us a picture of the enclaves of, in our flesh of the enemy which we are to dispossess. We are to bring down those walls in our soul and destroy the places, the footholds, if you would, of the enemy and see them dispossessed. But the Philistines don't stand for the flesh. They always stand for principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, 
and spiritual wickedness in the heavens, Ephesians chapter 6. Goliath was a Philistine, wasn't he? And who is he a figure of spiritually? Satan, exactly. And David, beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, goes out and slays him with five stones. One stone. But how many did he have? Five. Also, why did he have the other four? What if... Huh? No, grace is five. Six is man. Yeah. Grace is five. So why do he have five stones? Well, Satan... Ah, uh, Satan. What's that guy's name again he killed? Goliath, yeah. Goliath had four sons. You know that? They show up later on when David and his men, after he's established as king in Israel, go out to... to uh, defeat the Philistines finally, the four sons of Goliath come out against them. See, David was ready for them. If he'd have missed with that first one, he'd have never had a second chance, so that wasn't the thought he had in mind. He was just ready for Goliath's four sons. Well, if Goliath is a figure of Satan, and he is, then what are the other four sons? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in the heavens. The Philistines stand then for the demonical horde that's sent against the people of God, you see? And they're still there with Israel aren't they? Hmm? So, when God made a Palestinian covenant then, he promised to the children of Israel a land, and he gave them with that the dispensation of law. You all with us now? Now, with the dispensation of law then comes three covenants, the Palestinian, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. I'll run that by again. I gave those to you the other day. Under the dispensation of law then come three covenants, the Palestinian covenant, covenant of Palestine, or the Philistines, the land of the Philistines, that's why it's called Palestine. It's named after the Philistines. The covenant of Moses and the covenant of David. You know, it's, it's interesting to... Uh, while you're writing, I'll talk to you, all right? It's interesting uh, to run some of these names that are on the nations and the cities that are in those countries at this time. For example, what's the capital of the country of Jordan? Amman. What does that remind you of? Amen. <laughs> well, how about Ammon? You see, uh, the Jordanian kingdom is the old Ammonite kingdom. And Ammon comes from the Ammonites, the name of the Ammonites. And the Jordanian kingdom presently is the old kingdom of Moab and Ammon, of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and uh, Og, king of Bashan. That's Hussein's kingdom which really belongs to Israel, which he will discover in due course. All right, you get that then? Under law then, you have Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and a Davidic covenant. Now, this is the covenant for the land, and the Davidic covenant is the covenant for the throne. Here's the covenant for the land and the covenant for the throne. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant for the seed to inhabit the land and to be ruled over by the throne. You say, and what about Moses? Moses, the covenant of the law that included the law, was added, Galatians chapter 3, or I'm sorry, delay that, Galatians chapter 4. The law was added because of transgression till the seed should come. The law couldn't disannul the promise, Paul said. It was just added. All right? So the dispensation of law is added to promise. Why? because of the iniquity of man. And God gives then another principle whereby you govern the iniquity of man. Now, Ada noted to me that some of you had questions with regard to this law, the dispensation of law, and the diet which was given to man. 
Will you all permit me to run through this again very quickly then, just to clarify? Um, in these revelations of God, which is what dispensations are now, they are revelations of uh, the character and, and justice of God. They are stewardships of God's character and justice. Um, as man re, uh, receives greater and uh, greater understanding of what God is like, then that puts greater and greater responsibility on him, for to whom much is committed of the same shall much be required. Now, man's first diet in the garden, running through this very hurstily again, the man's first diet in the garden was what? Fruit. See, I could give you all a quiz and you could pass it. Okay, that was. What was his second diet after he was excluded? Herb of the field. Okay, any herb of the field. Uh, after the flood, uh, man became a carnivorous creature because the uh, atmospheric conditions of the earth were changed. Not only did he become a carnivorous creature as a result of the flood, but he also uh, seen a violent reduction in his longevity, didn't he? He lived to be seven, eight, nine hundred years prior to that. After the flood, he lives to be 200 years old, and it's been reducing ever since, coming down. And by our standard of living today, we have been able to raise that again some. We've stabilized it, but it's only because we have raised our standard of living that we've been able to stabilize it. So after the flood, he is an eater of meat as well as all these other things. That's not to exclude these. It's an additional thing. He is an eater of meat. He could eat any kind of meat, couldn't he? He could eat what was clean or what was unclean. Now, the question was raised, what's the distinction between clean and unclean? Well, that's a distinction which God himself has set down in the Levitical law. And the book of Leviticus deals at length with the law of the clean and the unclean. For example, any animal that clothed the hoof and chewed the cud was clean. Yes? Right? Like sheep or goats or cows. They chew the cud and cleave at the hoof, and they are clean. But a hog is unclean. Ask any Jew. Hmm? Now, a hog cleaves at the hoof, doesn't he? But he does not chew the cud, so he is unclean. A camel is unclean. He chews the cud, but he does not cleave at the hoof. you got to do both. Do you want a spiritual analogy? <laughs> May I? Huh? Yes. The cloven hoof notes a separated life unto the Lord and sure-footedness. The chewing of the cud is meditation on the things of the Lord and a right testimony. The Hebrew word meditate can be translated, chew the cud. God says meditate on his words. Yeah, that's exactly right. Go chew on it. Go chew the cud a while. That's what a cow does, you know. It's got uh, four stomachs and it brings that grass up again and chews it. That's what makes milk sweet. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fit to drink. The cow didn't chew the cud. How do I get on that? Clean and unclean. Yes, all right. So the distinction between the clean and the unclean was made for Israel. When the law was given, they could only eat the clean. Other distinctions. Any fish, according to the law of Moses, which had scales was clean. If it had no scales, it was not clean. Oh, I never finished my analogy, did he? The separated life, the two of them have to go together. Some people have a separated life, but they have no testimony. They're unclean. Other people have a testimony, but no separated life. They're unclean. It's like Pilgrim uh, in uh, uh, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, after he, you know, he was first pilgrim, then he was Christian. Uh, he was talking with uh, several people in route and was with him, I think, a valiant or faithful, one of those dear brothers. I don't remember which one. But anyhow, they were joined by a fellow named Talkative. And Talkative liked to talk about the power of things. My, he was religious. And he liked to talk about the power of things. But after they started talking about Jesus, then Talkative took off. He didn't like that. And faithful said to Christian, he said, he is rather like the unclean beast. He chews the cud, but he doesn't cleave at the hoof. And you see, that's what God is saying. All of these things have an analogy. So if the fish that has scales is clean and the fish that has no scales is unclean, like, for example, a shark or a tuna 
uh, etc. They have no scales. They were unclean to Israel. Um, but uh, they had scales that were clean. What's the analogy? What are scales on a fish? Armor. Exactly. They are armor. So Ephesians 6, take unto you the whole armor of God. If you don't have the armor, you're unclean. You see, you're open to the enemy. And on you go with the distinctions of the clean and the unclean. Uh, the dove was clean. The buzzard was unclean. That's not hard to get your brain around, is it? Hmm? The hawk was unclean. The cormorant was unclean. The raven was unclean. But the pigeon was clean. Do you know a pigeon and a dove don't have gallbladders? And they mate for life? Remarkable. They lose their mate, they never mate again. Clean bird. See? And, uh, well, on you could go with that. Both of them. You'd have to pursue the law of the clean and the unclean in Israel. And all of them have analogies. I do not see all the analogies, but they're there. And, you know, here again, Proverbs 25. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, the honor of kings to search it out. God has given us a marvelous book, and he says, Now, go by my spirit and search it out. And it's a wonderful pursuit. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Uh, Job said. All right, the clean. So then the clean was given to Israel because the law had been given at this point. So they're under law here. Now, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that uh, the law was given that the whole world might become what? Guilty before God. The law was given that the whole world might become guilty before God. Romans 3. Now, since the world became guilty, up to this time they, were, they could eat anything they wanted to because they were not feeling guilt. That's not to say that they were not guilty, but they did not feel that guilt. Sin is not imputed where there is no law, Romans 5, verse 13. So they could eat anything they want because they were not feeling guilt. Their bodies were not brought under a guilty situation, and therefore the metabolism of their body was not disrupted. Any individual who is feeling guilt disrupts the metabolism of their body. And as the metabolism of that body is disrupted, then the ability of the body to throw off intrusions of disease or to maintain an appropriate balance that wards off disease or whatever other such-like thing is broken up. It can't handle it anymore. Solomon put it this way in the Proverbs. He said, uh, uh, He that has no control over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. Now, does that have a parallel? Or, for example, sorrow of heart drieth the bone. Yeah. And in the bones is the bone marrow. And the bone marrow manufactures red blood cells and white blood cells, and that has the capability of throwing off disease. But if you've got a sorrowful heart, that process is slowed down, if not stopped, in your bone marrow. And if it's stopped, if you maintain that sorrow or stay in that sorrow, you could get a bad case of the flu just because you were unhappy. Did you know that? That's the truth. The balance between the spirit of man and the soul of man and the body of man are inseparable. Man is one person. He is spirit, soul, and body, and one person, and they are perfectly and thoroughly entwined. And only the Word of God can make the distinction between the two, according to Hebrews 4.12. So, man under law then, because he was guilty, because he could not throw off those things which intrude, was given a diet of just the clean, because there wasn't anything in the clean that could hurt him. You see? But after uh, the law came the grace of God, whoops, I'm in the wrong place. After the cross, when Jesus by his blood removed guilt from us, then our diet returns to meat again and anything else, any other kind, any kind of meat we want to want to eat, clean or unclean, etc. All right? And we're going up now. After the grace of, of or the dispensation of the grace of God, there's no such thing as the end of grace. It started with it in, in Genesis 3 and it goes on with it in eternity. 
But the dispensation of the grace of God is then followed by the kingdom, the reign of the Lord Jesus on the earth. And our diet once again comes to be the herb of the field. So the prophet Isaiah tells us, for example, the lion will eat straw like the ox. Quite a change in diet, wouldn't you say? See, before the flood, the lion ate straw like the ox. And people say, how did ever, Noah ever keep those animals from tearing at one another in the ark? They didn't want to. They weren't carnivorous. But after he came out of the ark, they became carnivorous. And now he's going to cease, the lion is going to cease to be carnivorous again. Man will cease to be carnivorous again, and his diet will once again be the herb of the field. But in eternity, or the day of God that we made reference to a moment ago, when we are restored to the same glory that we knew here, we'll eat of the fruit of the tree. Okay. And I'm going to hold you all accountable for that since I gave it to you twice. All right. But this is the reason for the distinction between the clean and the unclean. And God is the only one who makes that distinction. You see? We do not make that distinction. God set down what is clean and what is unclean. And the distinction was already known even back to the time of the ark because he brought them into the ark. Two of the unclean and seven of the clean. You remember. But God sets it down very plainly by his written word when he gave the law to Israel. And that's why he did that. The study of the clean and the unclean is very interesting. Uh, indeed. <clears throat> well, uh, technically, our class's time is up, beloved. Does anyone have any questions? Well, uh, this, this fruit over here, is that actual fruit, or does the fruit represent uh, uh, Christ? Well, Ted, we don't have any reason to believe that the fruit is not real fruit. Now, everything in God's creation is representative. It's always representative, but not just representative, you see. Like, for example, when man was in the garden, the tree of life was a literal tree from which man could eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a literal tree from which man could eat. But both of them were indicative of something. The tree of life is always Christ, for example. And in the new heaven and new earth, uh, the uh, tree of life lines uh, the river that flows from the throne in the heart of the city. And those trees bear twelve manner of fruit, every fruit in its season. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And that's a remarkable statement. Yes, it's literal fruit. But... Uh, We'll eat them because we enjoy it, not because we have to. That's encouraging to many of us. Um, the uh, uh, immortal sustenance of man will not be based on his eating, though. It will be based on the fact that he is a resurrection being. But something other than that needs to be said about the nations and the leaves of the tree. They're trying, well, they're trying to return to this because they've seen the problems that come from this. And the reason they're having to go back to this because they've seen the problems here is because they're still under guilt. Anybody who changes his diet in order to stop a problem in his life, now I'm not saying that there are things that we eat that we do better to leave alone. Now, don't misunderstand me. But if we are changing our diet from meat or going back to herbs because we see problems physically arising, and the problem is not what we eat. The problem is, one brother put it, it isn't what I eat, it's what eats me. Now, the problem is a matter of guilt. It's because of the law. And uh, we have done everything in the world in this country because we are a gluttonous people. We have done everything in the world that we could in this country to somehow or another correct our diets so that our bodies can survive. But the problem is not our diet. The problem is our heart. And if we would uh, give some attention to walking in peace with one another and before God, I think we'd find that to be less of a problem. That's world. But then you can't say that to the world. You see, he's under guilt. A lost man's under guilt. A lot of believers are living under a guilt they wouldn't need to live under. Uh, 
Okay, if I'm metal here, <laughs> you all forgive me. Uh, you know, the, the Greek word for, for uh, no definite article, if you want to describe a term which occurs that has no definite article, is referred to as anarthros. There's no article. Um, we use it in English uh, uh, descriptions and so forth. Well, we get our word arthritis from the same word, and it means no joint. You following? All right, now let's just think for a minute. We're talking about what is physical there, all right? Let's transfer that to relationships. Suppose we have broken relationships between two people. Now, I hasten to say this before I say what I'm going to say. I am not saying to you now that anybody who is suffering from arthritis has broken relationships with people. You heard that, didn't you? All right, now having said that, I'm going to say this. I'm convinced that a lot of people who have had family relationships for years are suffering from arthritis because of those broken family relationships. And you can find that same thing true in the church, in relationship between believers. There are just any number of physical problems. I'm not saying all of them now, but any number of physical problems which are directly attributable to spiritual uh, relationships, whether with the brethren, one another, or with the Lord. I said it, and I'm glad. Hallelujah. All right, Lord bless you, saints.